You're now listening to the Engage the Rockies podcast, your go-to podcast for local and state issues concerning Colorado. Hello, Colorado. This is Engage the Rockies podcast. I am your host, Jarvis Caldwell, Executive Director of Engage the Rockies. Today, we have Mr. John Fabricatori on to talk about the illegal immigration crisis and specifically the crisis that Colorado is now facing. John is an Air Force veteran, retired ICE field office director, and board member of the National Immigration Center for Enforcement. John is also a candidate for Colorado's 6th Congressional District, encompassing areas such as Aurora, Littleton, Greenwood Village, Centennial, and Buckley Space Force Base. John, thank you for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we're going to give a background uh, to our audience here on illegal immigration numbers, specifically southern border uh, crossings over the last few years. And the numbers that we have here from the CBP, the Border Patrol, is 2017, we have 310,000 crossings. 2018, 404,000. 2019, 859,000. So we saw uh, more than double in 2019. 2020, we have 405,000. 2021 is where we see an explosion uh, at the southern border here. We have 1.66 million for 2021. 2022, 2.2 million. 2023, 2.5 million. And an important note here in December of 2023, we saw 302,000 illegal border crossings just in December alone. And for perspective, like I said, in 2017, there was 310,000 crossings for the entire year. So in just the month of December 2023, we saw almost as much as the entire year of 2017, which is was pretty incredible numbers. And so, John, you are the expert in this field here. So can you explain to us what what is going on at the southern border? Why did we see this huge explosion again from 2020? 400,000, 2021, 1.6 million uh, illegal border crossings. So that's uh, almost quadruple the border crossings in 2021. Can you give us some perspective on why you think that is? Yeah, and there's there, there's a bunch of reasons for that. So, you know, it, it's good that you get that historical perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in 2018, I was actually the deputy chief of staff on the southern border uh, under the, the, the Trump administration, was sent down there on a joint task force west. So at the time, we had a lot of caravans coming up through South America in, in 2018. And then President Trump uh, saw a need to try to coalesce a lot of different uh, federal agencies at the southern border to stop uh, those caravans from coming in, in into the U.S. Uh, you know, we, we, we did a, a really good job at that. We're able to stop a lot coming in, but people kept coming up. You know, every every year there's a seasonal mi- migration pattern that actually happens. Like people mm-hmm. come up through the border. But over the last few years, it's been just growing exponentially, you know, more and more and more people. And, uh, you know, as you explained, you saw those numbers go up each and every year. So in, in 2019, toward the end of the Trump administration, as, as the campaigning for uh, the president started, uh, you know, uh, then uh, former Vice President Joe Biden came on and started talking about, hey, you know, we're going to have different things. You know, when when Trump loses and I become president, we're going to have a more fair, more equitable, you know, nicer immigration policy than, than what than what President Trump had. Uh, you started at that point in time, started to see more and more of the caravans started to kind of uh, build up and more people started coming into the U.S. because they really believed that if that if, uh, you know, then Vice President uh, Joe Biden uh, 
became president, that they would have a better shot at staying in the United States uh, and, and possibly maybe even gaining amnesty. So you started to see those numbers really start to ramp up in 2019. The numbers started growing. They dipped a little bit during COVID and then shot up again, uh, you know, a- after, uh, uh, you know, COVID was was said to be over. Right. So right. Uh, we started to see th- those numbers start to really ramp up. Uh, again, you know, you know, first day with the Biden administration, President Biden tried to have a hundred day moratorium against deportations. Mm-hmm. That right there showed the people coming into the United States illegally that this president, President Biden's administration, was going to have a wholly different strategy on illegal immigration than the former president had. So, right. you know, thankfully, that hundred day uh, moratorium did not happen. A, a federal judge was was able to put his foot down on that and, and say that you know that could not happen. That we needed to enforce the immigration law. So that went away, but. Other things did not. So immediately, President Biden started uh, having, you know, uh, going in and just doing away with everything President Trump had uh, that was kind of stemming the flow of Im- immigration. So the Remain in Mexico policy, they, they right away went against Title 42, tried to get rid of Title 42. Uh, they set up a, a, a priorities, uh, which came through Secretary Mayorkas to, to say, hey, interior enforcement, you're not going to go out and you're not going to make these arrests. You're only allowed to arrest this amount of people. And in order for you to do it, every agent needs to get into a computer system and fill out all these different screens and then have your supervisor say that you can go out and do this. So they made it hard for Mm -hmm. for agents to even go out and do their job. Everything that this administration did was was to make it more difficult for the interior enforcement to happen and for things to happen at the border. So. You know, right. the people on the other side of the border saw, saw that people from all over the world saw that. And you saw this explosion in illegal immigration. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's it's almost like like you were saying when the, the rhetoric is almost in, encouraging people because I they're probably looking at it from the perspective of, OK, well, if this person gets in office, uh, they're going to be more lenient towards us. And so maybe there's a path for amnesty or something. So I need to, you know, get there sooner than later. And so that would explain why you start seeing that ramp up during uh, campaign season and things like that. So that that makes total sense to me. Um, gotaways. Okay, so we we hear this term gotaways. We, like we have our official numbers of, of who's actually uh, captured, for lack of better terms, at the border illegally crossing, but then you hear about these gotaways. Can you explain to the audience, like what, what is from your perspective, from the border patrol's perspective and ICE's perspective, what is a gotaway? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, a gotaway is really hard to quantify. So, so what a gotaway is and, 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 and how they formulate that number are, are what visually a border patrol agent sees that he sees getting away from him that he mm-hmm. can't apprehend what is caught on camera or on on drones that are flying overhead. So again, still right. still video, um, and it's not always the best. Like you know, mm-hmm. when, when you're re- reviewing those night uh, the uh, uh, night vision uh, video in the middle of the night, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen those videos. Mm-hmm. You were in the Air Force too. You've seen yeah. how, how 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 you know the thermals work. You see right. a whole bunch of bodies. They're going through the desert. It's really hard to quantify those numbers and count those mm-hmm. numbers. But they, they that's what they do. They say, okay, we we see ten got through. This person wasn't able to apprehend them. That's what we're counting as a gotaway. Now, now where, where that number's really off is not everyone goes through sections where that are cameraed up or or have uh, uh, alarm systems that are alerting the border patrol to go to those areas and then mm-hmm. visually see what's coming across the border. So when they say 1.7 million gotaways, they really 
don't know if the number is ex- exponentially higher than that is. And, and, and my belief is, is that it really is. So there are tunnel systems that go under the wall. Right. There are breaches all along the wall where the, either the wall wasn't continued or there's just, you know, naturally you can't, there's a, there's a mountain range in the way there's, right. you know, there's all sorts of rivers. There's, there's all these other things that, that, that limit what our technology cameras, radar, and our border patrol agents can actually see. And mm-hmm. then you've got people being smuggled in the backs of trucks and, and trunks of cars. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that, that people are coming in that we're not capturing those mm-hmm. numbers and, and saying gotaways. So when you say 1.7 million gotaways, you know, it could be anywhere to to double that in, in the actual amount of people right. that are getting into the U.S. that we don't know about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that worries me and, and I think most people when they when they think about uh, the, the Godaway situation is that, you know, the policy that we have right now that we're seeing at the southern borders, people are just crossing over, not at the port, the ports of entry and just giving themselves up to Border Patrol and then. And then they get released and then they get a court date. Okay, come back. And, you know, in some cases it's backed up years. Get a court date. Here you go. Uh, we'll we'll see you in a few years. Um, so when I think of cutaways, I go, well, why are people not doing that? Why are they choosing to not just go give themselves up? There has to be some kind of reason. And feel free to expand on that. I mean, I know just off the top of my head, the reasons I would think of is they have serious criminal records, which is why they don't want to interact with the Border Patrol and and, and make that contact there. And I don't know if they get fingerprinted or something like that or you know, pictures taken or run a background check on them or maybe they're on a terrorist watch list, something like that. So if you feel free to expand on that, why people yeah, those might are, want to be those a Those are all valid, valid reasons mm-hmm. why someone could do that. But I mean, mm-hmm. one of the, you know, the easiest reasons and one of the reasons why a lot of people actually do it, the ones that don't even have criminal backgrounds, is they don't want to wait at the port of entry. They don't want to, mm-hmm. to, to fill out the CBP-1 app. Um, right. Because right now, even on the CBP-1 app, which I am totally against, the, the CBP-1 mm-hmm. app is an app that this administration is using to bypass law, in, in my opinion. But, um, you know, if, if you get on that app and you make an appointment, it could be weeks or months down the road and they're only mm-hmm. taking so many people a day. So so right. right now, a lot of these these people who are coming in illegally believe that they need to get in under this administration as soon as possible. Uh, you know, they you know, they they believe that them getting in, that is their their freebie. Um, so they want to get across that border as fast as possible. So that's why you don't see a lot of people going to the port of entry. They mm-hmm. know that if they cross illegally. So many are crossing that the Border Patrol is not going to be able to to vet them uh, thoroughly and they're just going to pass them through and send them into the interior. We don't have the capacity under this administration to hold people in detention. So historically, if you came over illegally and you claimed asylum, you would be put in detention until you saw a credible fear officer who would then, uh, you know, say whether your fear to uh, whether your claim to fear was affirmative or not. And then you would move on to an immigration judge. If you were found not to be credible, you were deported. And this was all in a detention setting. So under the Trump administration, we had about 52,000 detention beds. Um, It has gone up a little bit under Biden to about 34, 35,000. But now it's about to drop back down to 22,000 because of the uh, continuing resolution that that, that Mm -hmm. we're under. Uh, ICE is going to start letting people go from detention centers. So, so, So people are getting, they're trying to get themselves in as fast as they can now because they know detentions down and they know they're less likely to go in detention under this administration and be let into the interior. 
what, what what this is doing, because so many people are bombarding the border and trying to get over, is is the border patrol, you know, normally if they're doing an, an investigation on someone who's entered illegally, that could take two or three hours to, to do the paperwork, really sit down for an interview with this person, discover what their background is, try to find, you know, if they've got scars, marks, tattoos, gang symbols, mm-hmm. whatever on their body, do all this work and really do a good vetting process and let this person in. Well, with the amount of people that are coming in, that vetting time is down to about half an hour. So in in that time, it's really not enough time to do a really good investigative inquiry to really kind of dive into somebody's background and see who they are. So they're doing a very basic NCIC check, which is only checking historical Mm -hmm. data within the United States. So if this person's never been in the U.S. and never committed a crime in the U.S., they're going to come up negative on that background hit. It's not going to show... Any criminality they have over in Africa, over in, in, in right. you know, Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, you know, South America, those aren't going to come until later on down the road when mm-hmm. Interpol starts gets looking at some of these records and then sending red notice hits back to the back to us saying, hey, this person was actually has a warrant in Argentina. This person has a warrant right. in Ghana. And, but that could be months down. Right. The road. And at that point, and then, they've, you know, it, it's up to the agents to go find them. Right, exactly. And at that point, they're already in the U.S. It's not like right. there's ankle monitors on every uh, migrant no, that comes no. across. So you don't know necessarily where they're at. I mean, they could have you could think that, well, they ended up in Denver, but they could have hopped a bus and went to New York City at that point. Absolutely. You know, and a point that I always make with people when I'm discussing this is, you know, we when people come from countries such as like Syria, for example, uh, which we've seen at the Southern border, you know, Syria is in a civil war and has been for what over 10 years now. And it's like, I can't imagine our relationship with their immigration people are very good, you know? So if we get a a Syrian migrant uh, and we say, you know, what kind of background check are we going to get on them? It's not like we call up Bashar al-Assad and say, Hey, is this a, a good guy or a bad guy? You know what I mean? So like you said, it, there may be ba- a background check on them that we're able to obtain. But like you said, it may be months and months down the road. But yeah, that's, and, and Somalia mm. is a great example of that. So, you know, right. e- even the infrastructure in Somalia right now is not great at all. Right. So, you know, trying to get any kind of background information on people that are coming from Somalia is is, is impossible right so exactly. you know a lot of these these people that are, that are coming in from some of these countries just like you pointed out it's mm-hmm. it's nearly I- impossible to get information on them so we're letting people into the u.s you know and, and even from you know here in our own hemisphere from venezuela mm-hmm. there right. are, are a ton of gang members that are coming across right. that border there's a ton of ms-13 that are coming across yeah. the border right now from el salvador because of uh, of the president of el salvador right now is is really tamping down on ms-13 in yeah. that country so so th- they're not going to want to stay there and go to prison right. there so they're going to try to come here and uh you know pull their violence off in the united states and not and not in el salvador yeah and we're we're starting to see that that violence really manifest i mean we've we've seen in new york city uh what's going on and and with this recent case of some uh, illegal migrants who attacked a new york city police officer and then just i believe yesterday this is we're recording this on february 16th just yesterday one of those people involved one of those migrants i think he's 19 years old who was involved in attacking that new york city police officer officers i think there was two officers uh, just got arrested for robbing a, a macy's in new york city so i mean within one month he was arrested attacking a police officer and now he's robbing a store in new york city and 
I think we're going to see more and more of this. It's going to start really manifesting uh, as we go on, which is should be worrisome Absolutely. for everybody. Uh, you testified before Congress pretty recently here, and I know you've you've testified multiple times. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've yep. testified in front of Congress. I've testified here at the State House before. Yeah, correct. Awesome. So you testified. I watched a video, and you were talking about the Biden administration ending DNA testing for those uh, crossing with minors. Now we all know that human trafficking is a very serious issue at the southern border and, the, and what the cartels do uh, with human trafficking and especially with, you know, child sex trafficking and things like that. And so could you let our audience know, kind of explain the the DNA testing process and why it was ended? Or yeah. So, so under the Trump administration, uh, mm. they started DNA testing. It was, it was a rapid DNA test. So you, you mm. can get the DNA results back uh, rapidly within, you know, uh, 24 to, you know, I think it was 72 hours. You could have mm. those results back. Um, so we had a we, we implemented a contract on it. And the reason that, that they started that is they started to discover that children were actually being rented at the border. So so single male adults were coming in. They were renting a child down on the other side of Mexico, bringing that child across and claiming that that child was theirs so mm-hmm. that they wouldn't be put into custody because we were putting a lot of people into custody, into family residential units and all these other things. Um you know, under the Trump administration. So we were using uh, detention as a deterrent to keep people from entering the U.S. So they started the DNA testing so they could DNA test these people when we put them in custody to determine if there was a familial connection between Mm -hmm. the child and the person that was claiming to be their parent. Because these people are not coming over with birth certificates. They're not coming over. So, you know, I mean, this was a good thing that we had this DNA process to make Mm -hmm. sure that children weren't being sex trafficked or being used in this program just to keep uh, adult males out of going in to detention. What happened was under the Biden administration, again, when when Biden Mm -hmm. became president, he went through and just decimated everything that Trump did, including the DNA program. So they ended this DNA program. And and, and again, this, this, this DNA program was keeping men from being able to take a child in Mexico, rent this child, pay, mm-hmm. bring this child into the U.S., then drop it off with a smuggler, and the smuggler would then fly the child back into Mexico where the child would be recycled and then brought back into the U.S. again. And that, that's how we kind of figured it out. We had good Border Patrol agents that kept mm-hmm. seeing the same child with, wow. a, with different guys. And, the, and, you know, they were like, this is the same child. You know, and, and so we started doing an investigation. Even here in Denver, we found a Honduran male. Mm-hmm. who had a sex offense, uh, con- was convicted of a sex offense, had this child in his custody, and then was arrested for a sex offense again in the U.S. when he had gotten into the U.S. And, oh uh, you know, th- that's how we found out about the child. He didn't have the child in, in his custody when we arrested him at DIA, found that the child had been recycled back with it with a smuggler. But here's a sex offender that had this child in, in his possession and then get arrested for a sex offense again in the U.S. when he was in the U.S. So, I, you know, this, 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 this DNA policy was that was put in place to help save children. And this right. administration ended it. On top of that, this administration just started sending juveniles that they were encountering at, encountering at the border to Health and Human Services, who were then mm-hmm. taking those children and putting them with lightly vetted sponsors throughout the U.S. So we've encountered over 400,000 juveniles, children. Mm-hmm. And when I say children, most of the ones that, that are, are missing right now, because there are 85, over 85,000 of these uh, kids missing, are mostly between the ages of 13 and 19. 
um, mm-hmm. are, are the ones that are missing. But what happened was it was uh, Health and Human Services through ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, put these to lightly vetted sponsors and then tried to check up on them a couple of months later, six months later, eight months later, could not find 85,000 of the children that they had put with these sponsors, did not know where they were. This is the United States government taking children, putting them into the interior of the U.S. and losing track of them. And I testified to that in in, in Congress. Um, You know, it it made a little bit of a splash online. And Mm. then do we hear anything about it anymore? Do we do we see anybody trying to track down these children? Have there been any further news stories? Unfortunately, there's nothing. Wow. Yeah, that's that's heavy. Wow. So you you mentioned Denver. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, that the predator that was found in Denver and Denver, to say the least, is making a lot of national news. It seems like every time I turn on the TV on national news, Denver yeah. is on there uh, about the migrant crisis. So for those who live in Colorado, maybe on the western slope, who are listening to this and uh, aren't as connected into stuff on the front range, which I think almost everybody in America is at this point. Can you kind of give us a background on what's going on in Denver right now with this influx of migrants that they're seeing and, and how it's, a, how it's affecting uh, the, the services and things like that in Denver? Yeah. So I was just in down in Denver yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I don't go downtown very often anymore. Right. I used to love, I used to love to go downtown. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of great places to eat. There's a lot of good things to, to do downtown, but it's, it's a mess. Denver is in decay. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, you know, I went downtown, you know, observing a lot of what's going on and I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, Denver has been a sanctuary city as far mm-hmm. back as, as I can remember. So I've worked in, in Denver in, you know, with the old INS and into ICE since 1998. I've worked mm-hmm. a lot of casework in Denver, arrested a lot of illegal aliens in Denver. It's just gotten worse over the years um, with, with, with Denver releasing criminal aliens to the street, hiding criminal aliens from ICE. I mean, I, I can go back to, 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 to a, a case of Ever Valles, who was let out. Uh, Denver did not notify ICE about him. This was in 2014 or 2015. Let mm-hmm. him out. He winds up killing a United States citizen, a 32-year-old man at the RTD station down off of Parker. Um, you, you know, there's there, there's tons of cases like that just recently in Broomfield, mm-hmm. four-time yeah. uh, DUI. Again, not notif- they did not notify ICE. He's driving 100 miles an hour outside of a high school, kills a mother and her son. Um, there, there's tons and tons of, this, of, of these cases. Yeah. Denver is a sanctuary city. Colorado is a sanctuary state due to the legislation that Democrats have passed in this state Mm -hmm. and illegal aliens know it. The cartel knows it. And they come to Colorado because they know that they can get a driver's license. A lot of Mm -hmm. states don't give driver's license to illegal aliens. Colorado does. They know they can pay in-state tuition to our colleges. They know that they can go to our emergency rooms and get medical care. They know that they're going to get social services. And you hear people say, well, they're they're not eligible for federal social service. They they can't get welfare. It doesn't matter. The state has all sorts of benefits that you, the taxpayer, are still paying for. Mm -hmm. And they're still giving those to illegal aliens. They're giving them housing right now. You know, I went School. when I went downtown yeah. yesterday, I went to some of the hotels that are migrant hotels, mm-hmm. got chased away by a security guard the minute I'm down there because I'm trying to take video, trying to show some stuff. Security mm-hmm. guard comes around. Now, you can't take pictures. You can't do this. I'm like, well, I'm standing in the street. Yeah, I can. Yeah. So, you know, and, and all, all I see are just young men joking and smoking and hanging out. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is the situation. They think that they're going to come here to get jobs. What jobs 
are are they going to get here in Denver in the winter right now? Right. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you know, n- number one, you go to McDonald's, you, a robot's pretty much taking your order. I mean, you're going to a kiosk right. and there's a couple of people in, in the back. So a lot of the low service tech jobs or, or, or service industry jobs are going away. Right. Construction. We're in the middle of the winter here in, in Denver. Construction is, is, is down. I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, on top of that, all they don't even have the right to work yet. I mean, they, they right. came in and made an asylum claim. They haven't gotten work authorization. Mm-hmm. What jobs are they going to have? So for the next few months, what are they going to be doing? And idle people that are sitting around doing nothing. Right. Leads to bad things happening. So, I mean, that's what I believe that's what we're seeing in New York with with with, you know, New York's got a lot more than than Denver has. You've got a lot of idle people just sitting around drinking, smoking, joking. They don't have a lot of money. They want certain things. The next thing you know, you know, they're in one of these little moped gangs, ripping people's cell phones off, you know, small pickpocketing stuff just to make extra money. This is this is what you're going to continue to see. You know, I was yeah. down in El Paso a couple of months ago. I've been at the border seven times since I retired. Talked to some young men that were sleeping on the street, illegal immigrants, and they hadn't eaten in two days. They had been kicked out of a church because they had been a little bit of aggr- a little aggressive towards some women that were in the church. Mm-hmm. The church kicked them out. So they'd been sleeping on the street for a couple of days. Those guys are going to turn to the cartels here soon. Right. The cartels are going to come look at them, find them on the street, know that they haven't eaten. They don't have a good place to sleep. They're going to offer them money to, to to take a load of dope up to Denver, or they're going to offer them money to do other things for them. And these young men are going to turn to that because there's no other options for them. Yeah. And the, the citizens, the citizens suffer for it. And, and even the ones who, you know, want to, who, who have a soft spot for this and, and it's understandable. You know, I understand because if, if I was living uh, south of the border and, and I didn't have much opportunity and stuff and I wanted a better life for my family, then maybe I would try the same thing. And, and a lot of people have a soft spot for that. And I understand that, but you know, they also, they're going to have to suffer the consequences. And, and we're seeing it right now with Denver uh, mayor, uh, Mike Johnston, the, the fairly new mayor there, you know, he's went to his own city council and said, Hey, listen, we've taken in 40,000, migrants over the last year and it's cost us around 40 million dollars well now we're budgeting they're budgeting for 180 million dollars for this next budget year and that's about 15 percent of their their total annual budget for denver and they're already looking at cutting services he already just announced i believe it was this week or last week that the dmv uh and other community rec centers and things like that. They're all going to be taking hits and closing down and not being available because they're trying to save money anywhere they can. Uh, and that's, that's just the beginning. And he even said in his press conference, like, this is just the start. You know, if you thought the DMV was bad already, it's, it's about to get worse. And this is just the start of it. And, and I think we're going to see it so much more with our schools. I think in yeah. Denver public school system, They've had an increase of around 3,200 students just in like the last six months. And if, if I, I'm, I'm in the school system as uh, I'm on the board of directors of a charter school and every student there, there's a cost associated with every single student and the, the state itself allocates around like $10,000 per student. So when you talk about 3,200 extra students that there's no funding for and no money has been allocate, allocated for that. And it's just been dropped on the school system. And you're talking millions and millions and millions of taxpayer dollars that, that the school system just in Denver's at a deficit. Yeah. So, you know, I became a substitute teacher when I first retired. So I retired mm-hmm. July 22, became a substitute teacher in October for Aurora School District. 
subbed a couple of times and decided I, it wasn't for me, man. Right. It's just, uh, I, I, you know, my heart goes out to teachers. It's a tough job. Yeah. And the reason it was so tough, my, my first day in the classroom, I had 11 students that didn't speak English, not a word of, of English. And, and my Spanish mm -hmm. is okay. I can get by in Spanish. I haven't worked for immigration for so many years. Right. But they weren't speaking Spanish. They, there was Pashto. There was Russian. There were, you know, African dialects that I had, I had no idea. And mm -hmm. how, I, 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 it was hard for me as a substitute to yeah. even figure out, like, how to communicate with 11 kids that, that, that I, you know, I, I couldn't speak their language and I've got to get a lesson plan across to them. And then right. there were kids in the, in the classroom that were on emotional development plans. And mm -hmm. then you got a couple of kids in the classroom just trying their hardest to learn, but it's hard to pay attention to them because you're paying attention to these kids that are, you know, are, are on these you know, emotional development plans and you're paying attention mm -hmm. to these kids that, that aren't understanding what you're trying to get across. And it was frustrating to me, you know, and yeah. I, I can't imagine what teachers are dealing with every day as more and more kids keep getting added to their classroom, how they can effectively teach and how they can effectively get the lesson plan across and keep every kid in the classroom engaged and learning. It was impossible right. for me with the with a very little bit of training that, that I had. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I just can't imagine what, what, what teachers are going through. But, you know, to, to your point, you know, I am I'm pro immigration. Right. But we can't get rid of the world's poverty program by taking people into the United States. Yeah. Over 880 million people in the world are below the poverty level, below, significantly right. below, 880 million, almost a billion people are below it. We take in about a million people a year legally into this country. Mm -hmm. It would take us 880 years <laughs> to, to take all those below the poverty level to give them a chance in the United States. And that's below. That's not at the poverty level. That's not a little bit above the poverty level. Right. There are all these people throughout the world that want what the United States has. Right. We can't take everyone to give them a better chance. What we can do is help them improve their countries. You know, a lot of people like to say these people just want to come and they want to help America. They want to make America better. They couldn't make their country better. Mm. What's to say that they're going to make America better? Why not mm. have America invest in other countries, especially in our own hemisphere? If we mm. make South America better, if we make you know our, our everything that we touch in our hemisphere better, mm. America is safer. America is more secure. When we don't have people wanting to rush our border because it's safer, uh, uh, you know, economically better in their country, we right. won't have the issues that we have now. But you know, we, we have people say, well, every, everyone has a, has a right or a chance to come to the U.S. It, it, you know, we, the people that we have coming in now, what skill level are they bringing to the United States? You know, we're, mm. we're, we're, we're a generation. Most of the people coming in right now are below a third grade education. We're not yeah. bringing in people that are coming in on H-1B visas to work in technical jobs. Right. A lot of the people coming in are coming from countries where, you know, they're dropping out of school, you know, in elementary school because they've got to go work and, and mm -hmm. you know, you know, compete to make money in those countries. And we're not seeing, you know, people coming in that are going to be able to fill job pools that we need filled right now. Yeah. And yeah, and that the the language issue that you brought up is really important because it's not just Spanish, right? It's right. so many different languages. And not to go back too far in the conversation, but like you said, in our school system, it's like, well, you can't hire if you have one student who speaks no English, but speaks their native dialect uh, from either Africa or the Middle East or Asia, you can't hire just one teacher to be a translator for that. I mean, the school system just can't afford that. And so if you, if you have 3,200 students 
that have flooded the Denver public school system. And there's 40 different dialects, you know, and, and it, they're all not the ones who speak the same dialect are not all going to be in the same school necessarily. Right. What's the chances right. of that? And so, yeah, that's, that is a, a difficult situation that I don't think a lot of people consider uh, in this. And I, I agree with everything that uh, you said following that as well. I, I want to respect your time. We're at about 30 minutes here. The last question that I absolutely have to get to, and this is probably, I would say this is the number one concern when I, when I talk to people around uh, El Paso County or just outside Denver in general, is the crisis that's going on in Denver because of their sanctuary policies, that bleeding out into the rest of Colorado. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you, do you believe that's a, a likelihood or are you already seeing that? Because I, I hear a lot of concern in Colorado Springs and, and we've had some of our elected officials come out and say, listen, Denver, you want to be a sanctuary city? That's on you, but don't bring it down here. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, I mean, sanctuary law has been legislated into the state. So, right. you, you know, Denver's been a sanctuary uh, city for a long time, just just like Boulder. I mean, they, mm. you know, they, they've both been, you know, since I remember, you know, back in the 90s, they were pretty much sanctuary. But since that time, since 2013 and moving forward, Denver has, I mean, the state of Colorado has legislated laws in. So ICE agents throughout the state are not allowed mm-hmm. to go into courthouses. Right. ICE throughout the state can no longer get into contracts with county sheriffs for detention for illegal immigrants. ICE throughout the state cannot communicate with local law enforcement on cases, including probation. So that means an, an illegal alien that's committed a crime gets out of jail and gets put on probation. Probation cannot tell ICE that that person is out. That's legislated into state law. Wow. not just city ordinances. So yes, these these illegals are going to move into those other areas. Denver's mm-hmm. already spending millions of dollars to move people to any other state that they want to go to. Right. So so n- they're not just giving people services here. They're then saying, hey, do you want to go somewhere else? We'll pay mm-hmm. for a bus ticket for you to leave. They're spending that money already. You're going to see people move down into Aurora's next. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, we, I've already seen it down Tower Road. The tent city is moving toward Aurora. We're going to see it in Aurora. What are we going to do to stop it when the state has legislated it into law? So we, right. we need to knock out these state laws that say that these people have certain rights, okay? Yeah. That, that, that ICE can't communicate with, with – because look – we don't have enough detention space, okay? So we can't mm-hmm. arrest everybody, but I should at least be able to know who the criminals are so we can take them out right away. If right. someone gets arrested and they get put on probation, it should be we shouldn't even be thinking about it. It should be mandatory that probation mm-hmm. contacts ICE, but because of state law, they cannot. So yeah, wow. you, look, the, the every other city around, be prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, enact local ordinances to 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 keep tent cities out of your area. Enact mm-hmm. local ordinances to you know say that if you get caught driving without insurance or without registration, you're going to jail. Uh, make it tough. You have deterrence in your area. Make it tough for people to want to be in your area, and they'll stay out. Yeah, we're yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because we actually just saw this in Colorado Springs a couple of weeks ago. The the mayor had announced that a bus load. Uh, of migrants came down to Colorado Springs and he, he more or less took the position. Well, look, this wasn't the government that did this. Like we didn't send them down here. And what the belief is that it, it was nonprofits 
who are moving yes. them from Denver into different places. And if you think about it from a, a legal standpoint, the the migrants are they're free to move anywhere they want within the U.S. while they're awaiting their we their court them, date. Yeah. And there's nothing against the law for a nonprofit to put them on a bus and move them somewhere. And so I, I think, like you said, maybe laws where it says, "Hey, look." no tent cities and things like that, that can at least be a deterrence. You may not be able to stop them from actually showing up in the city, but you can make it more difficult for, uh, you know, the, to, to make it comfortable, I guess, for just this problem to grow within your area. So that's, that's a great point. Well, John, I appreciate it very much. We ran a little bit over and I, I I hope that's, doesn't cause a problem for you. Well, we appreciate it very much. This is a very fascinating discussion. And like I mentioned earlier, the immigration problem right now is the number one thing I hear about. So uh, I, I, I looked on I looked on social media and I said, who would be a great person in Colorado to talk to? And I consistently see you. You're very active on social media. Uh, if anybody wants to find you on social media, how, how do they find you on, on X or Facebook or wherever? Yeah, so I'm most active on X. I mean, I'm trying mm. to get onto some other platforms. Just joined Rumble recently. But on X, oh, nice. I'm I'm John E, the, the, the letter E underscore mm. F-A-B-B. So John E underscore F-A-B-B, uh, John Fab uh, at X. So I, I, I post a lot of stuff about immigration on X. Mm-hmm. I also post about two, I post about two a, the economy, mm-hmm. you know, just, just, just a bunch of other things that are, you know, part of my platform for, you know, this, uh, you can, you can follow me and see what's going on, but you know, this immigration problem is only going to get worse unless, right. unless we can figure out, figure it out now. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it very much. And we want to thank the audience for listening. And if, if you enjoyed this conversation, please make sure you, you share it with your, your friends and, and those around Colorado who are also concerned with this. And until next time, we'll see you then. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Engage the Rockies podcast, your go-to podcast for local and state issues concerning Colorado. 